Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. himself Rama and yesterday I got an email from him and it was interesting because he was talking about the brain being a magnet and he was talking about joy and how joy attracts more joy with the magnetism of it all and he's sort of saying that being joyful creates this magnetic wave of joy which changes the atomic structure of the world and I don't know if that's true or not but it's interesting because consciousness works in some way if I'm at a at a higher level of consciousness that's going to change the reality I experience and that will slightly change the reality other people experience as well if everyone was all of a sudden in a higher re- level of consciousness, we would experience a different reality. And so it seems like there are different realities present. It's just a matter of our level of consciousness and that's what we tap into. And I think with bipolar, we go into these high levels of consciousness and experience these other realities that are there, but they're just not the dominant reality. And that's why I feel like it's a calibration for us to see other maps and ways of of getting there. And then he even talks about focusing on our hair in order to increase this magnetism. And he says, focusing on the top of your head increases your brain's magnetic power. And it makes all of your thoughts more potent. And I like what he's saying. At the same time, I feel like if the mind is clear, if the brain is clear, then one doesn't have to think thoughts. There's perception, and then that sort of gives understanding, which can be a joyful process in itself. So we don't actually have to consciously think joyful thoughts. It would be more about clearing the mind of all thought. But at the same time, thinking joyful thoughts is still a lot better than thinking sad thoughts, for sure. And he says you have to imprint and encode your version of reality into existence. And that's in alignment with the blueprint that I think that we're given in our brain when we go into manic consciousness, we get the blueprint of the reality of the higher levels of consciousness. And then it's up to us to, to harvest that and to move towards it. And we don't have to do that, but it's an option and it's 
could be a fun game. It could be a fun way to use our supposed free will because in those highest levels of consciousness we realize it's all one and we don't really have free will and sometimes that can get us into trouble so we come back here where we have apparent free will and then we can still harvest and practice and embody that which we know will unfold those higher levels of consciousness not just within ourselves but within other people as well and I think that's the whole gesture thing because I had this insight today that one of the ways to have joy be one's predominant state is to help create that in other people so I think the brain needs to be wired for these higher levels of consciousness. It already is wired for that. It's just a matter of actually negating the wiring that is not inspiring. And I feel like medication is, is chemical castration of this transformation process. It keeps those lower circuits glued together. And that could be helpful, just like Dr. Daniel Fisher said these medications will buy you some time but it's not going to stop the process indefinitely and so I think it's important to get in alignment with the process and when I say that I feel like part of the process is interacting in these ways with other people not just with oneself like I'm doing right now even though I'm not fully in those higher states I'm sort of in this state of reason and logic and, and creating my own epilogic of things. I'm sort of having a dialogue with myself about the context, the map that I experienced before. I'm, I'm in the state of harvesting or maybe harnessing in that I'm creating the neural networks through dialogue about what it is that I experienced. And more accurately, it's what was experienced when I wasn't an I, when there was no ego. And I also realized it's not about focusing on mental health. We get stuck in focusing on the psychology and we don't really see that the whole psychology is the problem. And that a lot of the thoughts and psychology that we're having trouble with disappear at the higher levels of consciousness. So it would be more about how to be in the state of love and joy. I was thinking about natural alternatives and things like that and how over the years I've done a lot of research on natural alternatives for health and things and, and I was thinking about how perhaps I need all of that because I don't have a natural alternative lifestyle modern lifestyle isn't really a natural one and I'm wondering if there's a way to have a lifestyle that is more in alignment so then maybe one doesn't need fake sunlight and one doesn't need so many of these natural alternatives that one can just get naturally and I was once given a tip to lay with my feet up 
by someone when I had all those physical health problems and I'm thinking now that that tip was probably to get the blood going back to the brain so I might try and do that more too now I feel like it's more about the brain than anything else in the last two days I haven't had any anxiety really I have a little bit today because probably gonna give my resignation today for my job so I took two EMP instead of just one and I feel like the statement I don't know is one of the most powerful statements because it opens up space in the brain even with everything I talk about with myself I really have no idea what I'm talking about and I forget everything nearly everything and I also was thinking about how joy oxygenates the brain. So I feel like the higher levels of consciousness are what actually oxygenate the brain or vice versa. And it's, it's something together that happens. It's almost like as consciousness goes up, more brains can potentially get oxygenated in that way. And then they go up to joy, but then a lot of them fall back down to the lower levels of consciousness. And I feel like one of the reasons why that happens is so then we're calibrated. In some of the lower levels of consciousness, we really see what we're doing to each other with our thoughts, feelings, and actions. And it's really scary. And I don't think it's meant to be something to get stuck in. It's meant for us to see what we're doing and the dangers of thought and thinking compared to being in those higher states of love. And people that have gone through that process, they have the map within them and might be able to help people get up to that level of consciousness. Consciousness observes itself and how it responds to itself. And I feel it's intelligent to act to preserve the physical body, but it's not intelligent to act to preserve the psychology. And that's what we're doing when we're medicating people back to their ego structure. We're not helping people transcend that structure. And we're all living in abstraction and we derive pleasure from our abstractions because there's no joy in our actions. And our interactions with each other are more like inter-abstractions. And states of consciousness are what we all share. We, have, we all have access to any state of consciousness. And that level of consciousness is what determines what is unfolding in that moment. So in that way, we're each the same. I read this article online, somebody writing about Carrie Fisher's dog and how she used it as a coping tool. And how she was brave because she carried the dog and then had to explain the dog, which means she had to explain her mental health condition. I'm thinking she's brave and dead at 60. And it just angers me because then I was looking again at that article online about how people die 14 to 32 years early if they have a mental health condition and it says they often die of 
heart attacks, strokes, and things like that. And they were saying, well, it's probably to the different conditions of their life. Because they often have lower socioeconomic status and things. Well, Carrie Fisher probably had all the best of life. And she died at 60. And they say in that study, like, oh, we really don't know what causes it. Could it not be a side effect of medication? They don't ever say that it could be like that. Why do people get diabetes? Why do people... Diabetes usually happens to people pretty quickly once they're on medication. It's not something that happens 30 years later. It's like, well, how did that happen? So, I don't know, just kind of pissed me off. If she dies at 60, what luck do the rest of us have? I feel my question, what would a manic do, will help to grow the brain in the ways of the blueprint, because it sort of gets my mind going in the direction of the blueprint I was given. And that blueprint felt like heaven on earth. And I, I feel it will help to grow the brain cells back in that direction. And, and the next part of the process is being out in the relational mind with other people. Because me talking with myself is more developing my embodied mind. And Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about the embodied mind and the relational mind. And I think it'll help with the relational mind thing because I'm relating with myself and then when I relate with other people it'll be more strengthened in my neurology. I feel like higher consciousness is a higher energy state. So it's almost like that energy has more electrons wherever it is and however it is. And that's also what contributes to more oxygenation of the brain to go into those higher states of consciousness. And it's about seeing clearly. In map consciousness, we can see really clearly so we can make new maps because we're not polluted by our old compass of thoughts. And so part of getting to higher levels of consciousness is just negating that which we think and believe to be true. And maybe just replacing it with, I have no idea. And back to the UC Berkeley TED talk on neuroplasticity. He was talking about how deaf people can actually hear what they see in that the auditory cortex lights up when they're looking at somebody talking. So that part actually overlaps with the whole process of their communication as well. And I feel like when we become deaf to our prefrontal cortex noise, the visual cortex for us likely becomes the same as speech because normally we have the speech noise in our prefrontal cortex. So in terms of this sensory substitution or this neuroplasticity that might happen in map consciousness is that speech actually goes to the visual because the old droning on voice is quiet. So then what we see actually creates what we say and what we think. So I think there's a change in the brain processing in that way. And we speak what we see. And so psychosis in a way could be sensory substitution where the words are changing from the prefrontal cortex 
abstracting to the visual cortex and we say what we see. And that could be one of the reasons why some of the things that we say don't make any sense because we're actually seeing more of reality than the regular person can. We can see clearly, we're reading between the lines, we're learning how to read what we see in reality instead of our own abstractions getting in the way. And so this process takes some time to actually mature and develop so after a while we no longer think that when a crow flies overhead that means that that god is angry or something like that we can start to actually read reality and have this shift in perception the way we perceive happen i think medication helps prevent that switch from happening. So we then again are perceiving based on our own ego abstractions instead of perceiving from this other way of seeing. So I think psychosis is actually a switch in the way we see. And even Dr. Abram Hoffer said that mental illness is a perceptual problem. And he says that in his movie, Masks of Madness. And even saying that, I don't actually think it's a perceptual problem. I think it's a perceptual solution, but it's very troublesome to be able to perceive that clearly and read between the lines of reality in a reality that is traumatic and scary and based on competition and isolation and separateness and, and all these things that aren't actually innately part of how we are as human beings. And this switch in perception gets us perceiving more so with how we are innately as human beings. To walk around in a reality that isn't designed that way is painful. Because we don't just see words, we actually see the feelings we see with our whole being. We're not just seeing with our eyes, we're seeing everything. I like watching talks right now on the brain and neuroplasticity because, because the spectrum that I've experienced is what they're talking about even though they're talking about it in relation to something else. The brain is the brain. Consciousness is consciousness. I think what's actually happening is that consciousness gets stuck in thought and it actually identifies with thought as opposed to the level of consciousness that is, I don't know if it's creating the thought but or if the thought is creating the level of consciousness. So by negating thinking, level of consciousness goes up. And it's negating one's own personal thoughts and opinions and, and, and the value that one attributes to that. I feel like thought is the electricity, the negative charge going to the prefrontal cortex when it's supposed to be sort of flowing through us as consciousness comes through us. It, gets funneled into thoughts in the prefrontal cortex so that all that energy gets wasted in the prefrontal cortex as opposed to just having it flow and then we're actually perceiving in the moment what's happening instead of perceiving our own abstractions about the past. I had an insight about the diabetes example that is often given about how people have to take their medications forever just like diabetes. Well actually 
A lot of people manage their diabetes with just diet and lifestyle changes, and they don't take any medications. They have to have a very particular diet, very particular exercise and lifestyle, and they can manage it. Most people don't want to put the effort into that, so they have to take medication, which is fine. That's people's choice. And I feel it's the same with me, with bipolar. I can manage without medication. I haven't yet done that. But I feel I can. I might have to have a different lifestyle and diet and nutrition and things. And it might take a lot more effort. But if that's something I want to do, I should be able to do it. What I'm saying is if a person wants to get to the point of not having to take any medication, it takes work and it takes really learning about oneself. Another reason why I don't really want to work in the mental health field is because I feel like a lot of the research I've done over the last couple of years regarding mental health is silly in a way because that's acknowledging psychology and thoughts which I feel are meant to be negated as Krishnamurti would say. So me being concerned about my mental state and my is actually just reaffirming the me, which is the mental state, which is the, the trouble in the first place, is being over-concerned with oneself. And it's interesting how in mania, one is completely fearless and not concerned with oneself at all, really, and then as the process ends, and it's generally fearful, one is again afraid for oneself. One's fearful. And not that that's bad, it's necessary in the process of coming back. Because the me, the ego itself, is fear. So it makes sense that we would feel that fear pretty intensely. And that's interpreted as somebody's personal mental illness, when really they were detached from the personal and more existing in the universal and then when one comes back down to the level of thought, the level of society, then one needs that ego process again and it's it's scary. But that whole process doesn't mean it's a process to be feared or prevented from happening again. I feel like if it's understood, it's easier to to go through. And that's why I'm talking to myself to create my own understanding to either prevent it from happening, perhaps, or if it does happen, to be less fearful of it. So mania is just consciousness freed from thought, from personal ego thinking. There's a different level of thinking, which is from perception, which is a creative process. So it's almost like going from the ego, which is destructive, to this creative process, and then we come back to this ego process, which is destructive. And one feels very loving and joyful, and the other feels fearful. And it's giving the contrast to us, like how do we want to live? In fear or in this other state? And we can create this other state by gesturing it into our brain, into our nerve cells, in order for that to maybe be more 
able to handle that level of consciousness filtering through our system and also it's almost like strength training to be able to maintain that level of consciousness to actually have it changed in us epigenetically and we can actually exercise that we can do gestures we can work out our nervous system and our our epigenetics and our our chemistry in order to be able to uphold that level of consciousness because right now we don't have that internal biology in order to withhold it and then we're medicated into trying to never experience that again and I don't think it's actually good to try to experience that state I think it's good to exercise the body in such a way that one can hold that consciousness in the body without actually feeling manic it just it might even just feel normal and that's the thing once we get adapted it feels normal that state felt like this otherworldly spiritual amazing crazy magical thing because we haven't existed that way since childhood and then we can act in different ways so when that when we're actually in that level of consciousness we We've earned it. We've practiced it in our body because we're so used to practicing our own ego and our own fear that that's why we stay in those states. I actually feel it's important to practice this because there could be a huge wave of this energy coming, this consciousness, and a lot more of us could go into these states at the same time. And all of a sudden the world could be on like this insanely crazy place. And if we practice these higher states and these levels in our neurology, then when that high energy comes, we'll be able to maintain it and stay there. And everyone else that falls into everything else will probably, it will probably be hell on earth for a lot of people. So this wave could actually be a clue of things to come and then everyone else is trying to stop the people who are going through this from happening when they should be actually learning how to start to practice these states in their own neurology so when that energy comes they're going to be able to handle it because the very people who are pathologizing us could be the next to be pathologized watched a talk and I think it was at this exponential medicine conference or something and the guy I don't know his name he was talking about psilocybin mushrooms and how they're doing studies that it really helps people if they're terminally ill at the end of their life to deal with the anxiety of dying and he was hoping and other people are hoping that it might be rescheduled for use in that context for people who are really anxious about dying and he said there's an infinite wisdom within us within consciousness that's unlocked by psilocybin and i think it can be unlocked by many things not just psilocybin and i think that's one of the things that gets unlocked when a person goes into 
map consciousness or manic consciousness is it's like going into this state of infinite wisdom and he also said these are meaning making compounds and I thought that was interesting because I remember talking about the meaning making and how that's important I think map consciousness and mania is a state of making other meanings and assigning other values to reality than the ones that our programmed ego would have us assign. So again, I'm just taking what he said and transferring that over to the experience of map consciousness, which in my case has happened organically. I didn't have any kind of substance induced mania or psychosis. The point is that our own body can make these biomolecules endogenously and will do so if there's some kind of need for that. So for some reason, my consciousness thought, it's time to go into map consciousness, it's time to go into mania for whatever reason. And like Sean Blackwell said, it's a healing process. Even psychosis is a healing process. It could even be helping to heal that one doesn't want to participate in this insane society. And when I was listening to this talk, I was thinking about how psychosis could even be partly for us to experience death so we're not afraid of death. I've experienced psychosis and, and felt like I've died numerous times. I would say three times pretty strongly and then other times for sure too and the guy also said they take the medicine once and and it's a transformative experience it recalibrates how they die for one it's a transformative experience so is map consciousness and that can happen when the inner medicine of the body kicks in it's the inner wisdom, it's the inner shaman that kicks in and turns on these processes, that turns on these inner molecules in order to heal the psyche or whatever it needs to heal. It's, it's an inner death while living and, and we're judging that death as well and we're not handling that death process well either. It's a death of the ego or at least elements of it. Even Eckhart Tolle says to die before you die and realize there's no death. Well, this is part of what map consciousness is, dying before you die. And the other interesting statement is it recalibrates how they die. Well, I think map consciousness recalibrates how we live. At least it's supposed to. And I've even used that word recalibrate. Yet, after our recalibration, when we're at our weakest point because it's sort of drained us of everything we know to be true we're given the story that we're mentally ill and defective when if we knew anything about neuroplasticity we would know that's not true it's a matter of destructing all those circuits that are not serving us or humanity anymore and then growing again as something new just like a forest fire burns the whole forest down, well then a, a new growth forest, and it's even stronger because it's of the seeds that survive the fire. So whatever is left after the fire of mania and psychosis 
is what we're supposed to grow from and it's usually channeled into this process they call recovery which is you're mentally ill and you're defective and um, you're gonna be stigmatized because we've given you this and you're gonna have to walk around saying I'm mentally ill and defective but don't stigmatize me because that's what we say that you should say and how you should interpret this it's a rebirth it's it's a rediscovery and recreation process and psychosis and mania is like this fire that burns everything that we don't need anymore and then it's up to us to to move into that which is indestructible because it can only destroy those parts of us which are not real and part of the recalibration is to open our hearts and he mentioned in the video something called the noetic quality which is encountering ultimate reality there's definitely a noetic quality in mania and psychosis and when we experience that ultimate reality sometimes we are sounding like we're confused and things because it's a state full of awe and wonder and sometimes we can only use metaphors to try and put it into words and he talked about set and setting for the people he administered the psilocybin to and how important it is well for people in map consciousness their set and setting often is their same old mundane life or the structure of society which is not structured for somebody to be in map consciousness for long periods of time without getting freaked out and then not only that people are taken to scary settings such as psych hospitals and then since they're so vulnerable and sensitive in consciousness they can react to that and then they look like they're mentally ill or something when really they're afraid because they should be and I was thinking about how people might be allowed to have these states of consciousness to go into altered states of consciousness at the end of their life they're not now but maybe if they change the laws people will be able to take that from a doctor at the end of life in order to feel comfortable with dying yet it's not okay to have map consciousness any other way at any other point in time it's not allowed part of the trouble with psychosis is it's just not allowed and he gave some examples of what people were saying after they experienced having the psilocybin mushroom experience and people are saying we're all one and all these beautiful things and I'm thinking wouldn't that be good to know at the beginning of life wouldn't that be a good experience to give people when they're just hitting puberty wouldn't that create a different world yet oh since these people are dying we're gonna let them have this altered state of consciousness in a safe and controlled environment which in a lot of shamanic cultures is part of rites of passage where people are given some kind of teacher plant or something in order for people to have that experience to inform the rest of their life not to inform the end of their life and he was saying consciousness is made out of love and all this lovely stuff and I'm thinking to myself 
These are the things people need to know before they enter into adulthood, not just before they go to the other side. And I think that's part of what map consciousness is trying to do, is creating the same experience of a psilocybin mushroom endogenously. We can do that spontaneously. We can't by our own will, but by the will of something else, which is one of the reasons why it feels so mystical and, and, and otherworldly is because we don't necessarily always consciously intend for that to happen. So even though we have this illusion of control and this illusion of free will, we only do to a very limited extent. And you talked about seeing ultimate reality and how love is the answer. And it's just silly to me because if that's really what that does, people should be given that in high school, not when they're dying. It's just, it seems so obvious that the only way it would be allowed this way is because people are going to die. And, and it's like mercy on these people who have maybe sold their life into some other crap that they didn't even want to do because they didn't know that love was the answer from the beginning because it's programmed out of us. So it's a good start that people might be allowed to die in peace. After not living in peace. Mania is the mind exercising the brain. Consciousness can exercise the brain. The level of consciousness exercises the brain. And it seems that consciousness wants us to get used to these extreme changes in consciousness. And people who are able to do that will actually have an advantage. Something beyond us is changing our consciousness. Part of this is the perspective taking. That's part of how the mind uses the brain to create itself. We have to be able to see from all the infinite perspectives of the total mind. That's our job as human beings. We're probably the only creature that can do that. The mind consciousness is changing our brains. And we think that the planet will be destroyed, but I think what will actually be destroyed first is our own brain. Because there's a certain percentage of people right now with their brains not working properly. The brain is not really being used properly, it's being wasted. I think wise brains will last. Dr. Albert Vitilido said, nature selects for wisdom. And if map consciousness is a state of wisdom, of learning, I feel that nature is going to select for brains that have the whole spectrum of wisdom, the whole spectrum of consciousness, and other brains will be deteriorating whereas they can't even really function anymore. And the wisdom is all those natural innate human dimensions. Those inner human dimensions are what feed the brain, really. Cooperation, laughter, oxytocin. Our brains are starved of 
the nutrients of relationship and unconditional love, which are oxytocin type experiences. I just looked up oxytocin and it looks like it might be increased by vitamin C. I just looked up oxytocin and it looks like it might be increased by vitamin C. I was thinking about that other TED talk I watched which was Flex Your Cortex and how one of her secrets was thinking big and it occurred to me that most people don't even know how to think big because we're so busy thinking about the past or we're so busy thinking about our knowledge or what we've memorized or stuff like that so we don't actually know how to think big and I was thinking that my self-dialogue process is sort of like thinking big they're not really big thoughts but they're just a lot of thoughts and there are a lot of new thoughts and different thoughts and some overlap and and in that way I think it's creating new brain cells in my brain and, and probably more blood flow to my brain as well but it, it just sort of occurred to me that I don't even know if people know how to use their brains in this way or in a similar way. People might be able to watch a TED talk or something and nod their head and smile, but can they actually interpret it? Can they actually extrapolate it? Can they actually find the meaning and and what's implicit in what's being said and, and relate that to other areas or can they just absorb it and try to memorize it and then regurgitate it later. And I feel like what she's talking about thinking big doesn't mean regurgitating what other people said because those are old memories or even memorizing something in general causes, I think, scar tissue in the brain because we're not really meant to memorize things because if our brains are perceiving and and seeing and, and thinking in the moment, then our brains are doing its job because it's responding to the moment. And if we adequately respond to the moment, we don't really have to think about something else. And if we need some kind of other information, we'll be able to find it or it will just appear in our consciousness without having to actually think about it or remember it. It'll just, it'll just be there. Just sort of like, aha. Our brains are supposed to work more like aha and eureka all day long, not I am this and blah, 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 blah. So, so yeah, part of this me talking to myself is the thinking big and maybe other people might see that this is about thinking for oneself and growing one's own brain. Instead of being thinked by old thinking. I feel like saying I think 
if it comes from memory, if it comes from the past, if it comes from a personal psychological thought, should be more like, I thunked, I thunked, I thunked. And that's more equating what's really going on in somebody's head, which is like old scar tissue, as opposed to actual using one's brain to see. So I really hope that people might be able to start seeing and thinking, not sawing what I saw yesterday or 10 years ago and replaying that in one's consciousness, which keeps one in the level of consciousness of those thoughts and is a prison. When you hyper-learn in this way, you don't need memory. If you need memory, it will be there, but you don't have to actually be using any of your energy to find it. If your mind screen isn't full of your own past thoughts and thinking about yourself, that's where those memories that you need or information or or ideas will will appear. Appear not as a linear associative process, but just likely holographically. And it is likely holographic because as they say, every bit of information in the entire universe is available at every point in the universe. So if our brain, our mind screen, isn't clogged up with anything, holographically, in that moment, as the moment requires, the light of your awareness will access that because you can be aware of it because you're clear. And when you're always remembering things, it's in the way of that clarity. And the hyper-learning state without memory is intrinsically motivating without having to think about what is motivating because that's a memory. So even one's motivation has to be negated and I feel that with map consciousness, it takes a while to grow into our expanded awareness and to be able to be aware without falling into the trap of getting used by some of the things that we become aware of. It takes time to adapt. Like I mentioned before, it's like being blind and then all of a sudden having surgery to restore eyesight we think we see the world, but we don't. We just see our own past. And it's interesting because we see our own personal past and in map consciousness, a lot of times we get access to the past of the collective of humanity. And it's almost like the past of the collective of humanity led up to the point where we're born and then we see in that same way and we continue those perceptions. So us being born as a perceptual apparatus in the universe was preceded by all the collective perceptions up until that point. So it makes sense that in map consciousness we have to go through that entire spectrum of all of the perceptions of humanity in order to 
rid ourselves of those perceptions because we can't really rid ourselves of something that we're not aware of. So we become aware of all of that so we can say goodbye to it and not have it as part of our perceptual apparatus. I feel like MAV consciousness is neuroplasticity. It is learning. It's the brain learning about the mind. And then a person comes back from that state and everything is done to try to stop it. Whereas everywhere else in science and brain science, they're trying to study neuroplasticity. When it comes to people who go through these neuroplastic extreme experiences, these extreme experiences of neuroplasticity, they're given meds to stop it from happening again. And it's never equated to neuroplasticity. Oh, let's research neuroplasticity and for people recovering from spinal injury or from, for people recovering from some kind of happening at birth or, or, or stroke, but oh, people diagnosed with mental illness, oh, that has nothing to do with neuroplasticity. We don't want to think about that because that's the brain turning on hyper neuroplasticity for itself by itself without the need of science or anything. So we don't want, we don't want that because you can't patent the brain turning on its own neuroplasticity. So second brain growth and pruning. And the brain is trying to outgrow the society. It's trying to operate at higher levels of consciousness in order to create a different society. The brain is trying to wake itself up and is trying to learn how to celebrate and be joyous for no reason, because reasons are given to us by society. Reasons are programmed and so is motivation. Motivation is like focus. They tell us what to be motivated by and for and to focus on. And if we're not motivated by those things, then we, something must be wrong with us. Just means we weren't able to accept that programming. It's interesting how it's taken a lot of words, a lot of self dialogue in order to replace the programming I've been given about mental illness. Even though I never really believed the diagnosis when I got it. I remember thinking that's not it. Even though I knew that wasn't it, I didn't really know what it was, and I still don't. But I'm starting to feel like we're not mentally ill, we're neuroplastic. We're not our egos, we're not our personalities. I feel like I'm not mentally ill, my brain is trying to grow into higher levels of consciousness but it's not really mirrored and reflected in society. So it's difficult to stay there if one doesn't really understand what's going on. And especially if one doesn't understand what's going on 
and goes back down to lower levels of consciousness, back to ego consciousness. And then if one inherits the understanding that it's just a pathological mental illness, then one's definitely not going to grow into higher levels of consciousness. One's definitely not going to act in ways that will actually help grow the brain in these other ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why in mania we connect with things like altruism and and so many of these things related to the oneness of humanity because it's this higher level of consciousness. And then we come back down and we're told we have this individual mental illness when our brains were growing into the consciousness of oneness, which isn't the dominant level of consciousness, but one can still move towards that. One can still work to neuroplastically rewire one's brain according to that by harvest practicing embodying one's mania and i don't even think one actually has to really harvest practice and embody it one just has to open one's brain back up to learning moment to moment whether it's learning about prior manic states or whether it's just going out and embodying it embodying something other than one's habitual conditioned personality by allowing the surprise of consciousness to interject the stream of habitual self ego me reflexive thoughts the brain is trying to actualize its potential to embody the mind to embody the consciousness that is the highest level of consciousness we're here to embody which is unconditional love it's almost like our brains have gotten to a point where they're just getting so narrow that it collapses upon itself and then phew, the neuroplastic process turns back on as an emergency mechanism of consciousness to save, to salvage some brains. We can only save our own brain. It's transconscious brain growth when the brain gets access to higher levels of consciousness, it grows. It grows neurons to actually be able to mirror that level of consciousness. So people who have gone to those higher states have the blueprint. It's just a matter of acting based on that blueprint. It grows because it can see different perspectives. So seeing is what grows the brain. Actually seeing. We're always seeing the past, so the brain's not growing. And consciousness is non-local, it can leave the body. I had an experience once where I was a bird flying south. And in that process we learn different meanings. We learn other meanings of what it is to be alive. And then when we come back to ego consciousness, we re-inherit those meanings. And not only that, we inherit the meaning that we're defective and we're mentally ill. And this isn't about convincing anyone that they're not mentally ill or that they are mentally ill. It's about finding out for yourself what you want to think about yourself. And being confused is an important part of the process because it means we have to rearrange our mental models, just like Jason Silva says with the experience of awe an experience of such perceptual vastness that we literally have to rearrange our mental models in order to integrate it. The prefrontal cortex is what generates 
abstract thoughts. And when we decouple from our ego, and then we come back to it, we can have some scary thoughts that we don't think we are thinking. But it's generated by the prefrontal cortex. And when we're trying to end our life, we're actually trying to end the prefrontal cortex. We're trying to end those thoughts and our personality. We're not actually trying to end our life. Some of us do end up ending our life, but we really just want those thoughts to stop. Again, it's another mechanism by which the prefrontal cortex is being destroyed. It's by people ending their own lives. Being told we're defective is very destructive because we're just getting back to learning. And if we're told we're defective, we're not going to continue learning. We're going to stop the learning process. Not only that, we tend to isolate because we think we're defective. And then that isolation also causes further atrophying of the brain. It atrophies the relational aspect of the brain and the mind. So part of harvesting mania is thinking about things in many, many ways and not grasping onto anything in particular. Through my whole process of self-dialogue, I haven't held too tightly onto anything that I've said. And in not hanging onto anything tightly, I've had more insights into how I might want to talk about it with myself to the point now where I'm seeing that it could just be the brain attempting to grow and it's growing pains and the brain is trying to grow into consciousness and I like that reframe I'm curious to know what's to come in terms of reframing, but I feel I've definitely gotten to the point of talking myself out of feeling like it's a mental illness. And like I said, I've never really felt that it was, but I've, I've still participated in things related to mental illness. And a lot of it is very valuable, especially the psychosocial stuff because it keeps people from isolating and and a lot of the people I know who I'm friends with through this process are amazing people and so for me it has nothing to do with mental illness it's just about connecting with friends in map consciousness we suspend our opinions and our judgments or they're suspended for us and they're pushed out by the speed of processing in which we can see clearly in the moment and understand and then that produces a lot more words because of that information coming through all the senses clear seeing and clear perception is what grows the brain makes sense because if we're thinking something old it's not going to be something new that's going to grow the brain expand the brain make new connections it's an old connection and if the brain is clear, it can see and it can learn. And I feel like you might find if you can see and learn in that way, there's not really that much else you need. You don't need motivation. You don't need all of these other abstract concepts because your brain is clear and it's doing exactly what it is meant to do.
And so that's all the meaning it needs. It doesn't have to search for meaning because the very meaning is the brain, which is learning. And if it can't learn, it's going to be looking for meaning because it's all clogged up with abstractions and, and, and crap. I was thinking about a lot of these nutritional biotypes of bipolar, how they require more B vitamins and and B vitamins are mostly made in our gut by gut bacteria so this could have something to do with again how the microorganisms and how we kill them is actually destroying our brains and I think that is the case in some research in autism and and it is partly the case with mental health and they even say 80% of serotonin is made in the gut so with our overuse of antibiotics, we think we're killing these pathogens, but really we're destroying our own brains. And the bacteria actually help to create our brains. The bacteria partly are our brains and we're against them too. And bipolar is like bipolar hypersensitivity and bipolar hyperperception. And when we're hypersensitive and hyperperceiving, we're hyperlearning because we see more, so we, we're processing more. We feel more, we're processing more. Society is designed in such a way that we don't even feel how we're killing ourselves in a slow and painful way. Our emotions too are because we're not learning. We're busy thinking about the past and emoting about the past. And that's wasting our molecules and our nutrition and then we need more nutrition in order to actually exist in the material world and and we're emoting about the past because we're not fully engaged in the present so all of this waste of energy is because we're not in the present moment because we can't deal with what's happening in the present moment because we don't know how because we don't know how to learn because we're busy thinking about the past. And we've turned the material world into habit. And by doing that, we're habitually going about our day and we're not even present. And then we're busy worrying and emoting about things in our brain. So we're living in our own emotions in our brain. If we we're fully engaged in the present learning, we wouldn't be emoting. and We wouldn't be wasting our nutrients and, and destroying our brains. Map Consciousness showed me what I need to do to build the Dream Center and I think I talked about the Dream Center before and I just want to tell myself about it again. When I think about it, the Dream Center would be about allowing people to go through their transconscious experience in order to shift from perceiving through the past the scar tissue of neurons in the brain and that is decoupled from and then all of a sudden one is existing as their neuroplastic brain their infinitely pliable brain as Krishnamurti would say they're not acting as a programmed reaction to the past 
I finished watching Sean Blackwell's videos and he talked about how the spectrum of psychosis is the same as the spectrum of consciousness. So in a way, the remedy for psychosis is an increase in level of consciousness. And I don't think the question is how to solve mental illness, it's how to be fully alive and gesture oneself into joy. Will you join me? Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.